All right, it's recording. Woo. Uh, okay, okay. I was, this is a short, so we don't have to dawdle, right? Yeah. All right, so I am Ryan State and Country Fairs McKenna. Sounds way more exciting and engaging than being Harland COVID Toes Grant. <laughs> we are the Doddlers. Here with the Doddlers Philosophy Podcast. Shorts. The Doddlers Philosophy is an amateur production of two dudes in a basement with no association, affiliation, cooperation, or combination with any other entities, primate or otherwise. The views expressed may or may not have merit, and the listeners are encouraged to argue amongst themselves. If you wish to express appreciation for the endeavors undertaken, please visit patreon.com slash philosophy to support the show. Send an email to philosophy at gmail.com or rate and review on Apple Podcasts. For updates and downtakes, follow on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or subscribe on your favorite podcast application. What are we going to talk about today, Ryan? Well, Ryan, we're going to talk about C.P. Snow's The Two Cultures. You're welcome. It's about time somebody did. It really is. It really is. Um, this is one of those mythical objects. I've heard about yeah. this paper since undergrad. Everybody talks about it all the time, and I have not yep. yet, until motivated this week, actually gone and read it. Indeed, it is um, was <clears throat> a published lecture given in 1959 by Mr. Sn- Dr. Snow. Is it Mr. Snow? It's Lord Snow. I, all and, I know uh, is he knows nothing. There you go. Uh, and it was something called the Reed Lecture at the Senate House in Cambridge. And the Reed Lecture, I don't know if they still do them or not. This is a short, so I didn't do a whole lot of background research. But uh, it's an annual lecture, at least at the time. And so I read a little bit of the <clears throat> beginning of, there's like this, it, the copy that I sent you, there's a big old preface. Uh, the copy's a 1998 copy or something. And it has somebody talking about the lecture and the significance or whatever. And this apparently launched a sort of more or less international career for C.P. Snow. Um, so he wasn't quite Lord Snow, I think, at the time yet, but he was getting there. Um, and so, yeah, this is, this is a, a lecture that he gave where he was concerned about a kind of level of incomprehension between two cultures that he kind of created. I don't know if one would say they were diametrically opposed to one another, but they definitely had their differences. Um, and so I guess where I'll go from here is uh, the two cultures are <laughs> uh, <laughs> sort of one he called the literary intellectuals, also known as throughout the, the lecture, the traditional culture. And then the other one he called the sort of the natural scientists, which he also called throughout the lecture the scientific culture and in particular i think he's he kind of gives um a, almost a sort of genealogy of the problem 
uh, a slight one, right? It's not a huge one or anything like that, but he is kind of trying to trace the roots to how this might have come about, right? And maybe that's based partly on his experiences with the two cultures, as he calls them, or the individuals in them. Because as he says at one point, um, that, you know, he is sort of, uh, let's see, I'll find the, he says, quote, By training, I was a scientist. By vocation, I was a writer. That was all. Um, and so... So that he's had occasion to, ex- to engage with both. I'm yeah, he straddles both. Yeah. That could be the other one. The Doddlers, the Hustlers, and the Straddlers. So, um, and again, another quote would be of him saying, quote, There have been plenty of days when I have spent the working hours with scientists and then gone off at night with some literary colleagues. I mean that literally. <laughs> Sorry. Couldn't get through that quote. Uh, um, so yeah, so there's the, <laughs> that kind of stuff is what he's trying to talk about. Yeah. Um, I, I, the one that I had plucked as kind of the statement of the thesis and that for which this paper has become a touchstone is that he writes, I believe the intellectual life of the whole of Western society is increasingly being split into two polar groups. Literary intellectuals at one pole, at the other, scientists. Between the two, a gulf of mutual incomprehension. Sometimes hostility and dislike, but most of all, lack of understanding. They have a distorted image of each other, and their attitudes are so different that they can't find much common ground. Yes, absolutely. And in another point, he says... Um, and we won't quote the whole damn fucking thing, but he says, you know, for constantly I felt I was moving among two groups, comparable in intelligence, identical in race, not grossly different in social origin, earning about the same incomes, who had almost ceased to communicate at all, who in intellectual, moral, and psychological climate had so little in common that instead of going from Burlington House or South Kensington to Chelsea, one might have crossed an ocean. So, there's that intense visual. Frame. Well, you know, he's a he's a writer. He's Columbus, is what he is. Uh, so yeah, so he is a writer, and I liked some of his writing. I liked that he says at one point um, that scientists have the future in their bones, and I was like, yeah. <laughs> Other people like that too, because when I typed that into Google, there was at least one paper commemorating something related to him, and probably this article um so it because we you know dichotomies are so god dang fun uh you know we can kind of go back and forth throughout the short short that we're doing here of you know well the literaries were about this the scientists were about that and did did it did it did it you know and just kind of go back and forth but in general i kind of feel like he he kind of uh First off, says that, you know, sort of more or less the Industrial Revolution is to blame um, for the, the, and this is sort of the genealogical stuff, for the effect that it had on uh, people living, at least in specific, specifically in England at the time, in that 
uh, it provided new avenues for the poor on the one hand. So, you know, um, he talks about, you know, how people would have flocked to the factories to get out of the drudgery of being in the fields um, on the one hand. And on the other hand, it also made the rich richer, right? Because they effectively probably uh, gave money to, you know, or, or what is it that they were, they patronized these efforts by the Industrial Revolution and then, of course, reaped the benefit. Hey, leave my stocking! from any of the gains made uh but that at the same time they for their children or whatever they didn't have them necessarily go back into efforts that you know were creating and being created by the industrial revolution but instead they would go and become more administrative type people and the idea was you know trying to get india all squared away and all that type of stuff and so if anything, the the people, the kids, I mean, of a lot of this, you know, uh, a lot of the wealthy people in England or whatever, they kind of ended up going more in a literary direction and not going back and, and becoming familiar with machine tools and the second law of th thermodynamics or any of that kind of stuff. So there's that sort of background is that the scientists have a poor upbringing and the literaries have this sort of, you know, wealthy bourgeois kind of or bourgeois, whatever you say. <laughs> I said boudoir and bourgeois at the same time. Um, but they have that kind of a background, as he seems to suggest. Sounds like it could be a vintage clothing, clothing shop in Portland. <laughs> The bourgeois boudoir. <laughs> Would you also say that it's fair to say that part of what Snow is getting at is, in an important sense, the literary one was, quote-unquote, there first, and the scientific one was developing even still in this day, 1959, uh, yeah. and the scientific culture that he's talking about sort of initiates in the in the early 1900s with Einsteinian yeah, sort of yeah. times and then that one of the driving forces in the creation and empowerment of the scientific culture is the academic tendency towards specialization which we've also talked about in a previous episode well, of which England was more so than other places like the U.S. or Russia, which is which falls into some of his later stuff that we may or may not get to. <laughs> his later stuff about education, but anyway, yeah. If that answers, yes. Okay, Harlan. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he talks about how. Um, so I'll just kind of bounce back and forth. Literaries rich, scientists poor. Literaries are glib about the human condition. Scientists are sad but optimistic. Literaries are Luddites. Scientists are like technophiles. You know, like it's kind of goes back and forth. He has this sort of back and forth that naturally is going to, I think, arise when you're writing about a dichotomy or if not a dichotomy, then at least two things. Uh, you know, the literaries may have a more of a sense of hopelessness, perhaps, whereas the scientists have a lot more hope. The future's in their bones. 
Um, but then he talks about even then with scientists, there's the subcultures of pure versus applied. And that starts to even like branch further from there. Um, and that he talks about the political kind of uh, spectrum within the sciences or with respect to the subcultures where the pure scientists were more like leftists and socialist types and the engineers or the applied scientists tended to just be more conservative. And so he's really, he's creating to me this like ongoing genealogical relationship, you know, of, you know, how we got to now kind of thing and where are we going? Cause it's a, you know, annual lecture. That's kind of the way, right? For me, this paper, this lecture didn't do anything. I was just mostly amazed at its degree of fame, given how I didn't see much content. Maybe it's just because it was so successful that that has become the embedded story in my culture, and it now sounds trivial. But, yeah, I don't know. I didn't really get much out of it, other than this one little insight or formulation that he says, is, uh, whatever his phrase was, something like, uh, a good deal more than mere metaphor, but a good deal less than a cultural map. Uh, <laughs> a way of cutting people up into these two camps. Yeah. The humanities and the sciences. Okay, great. Yes, fine. But other than that, I didn't think there was really anything interesting. Well, did you feel like uh, your sense of what it was before you read it is the same you know what i mean did you feel like okay i think i understood beforehand without having really read it and now having read it i feel like my understanding is the same as it was before yep cool i mean that's that's a i guess that means it's been a successful meme or whatever right where people such as yourself might be feeling like well i feel like i've been down this road before just not you know you know this specific one i've been down a uh, avatar or proxy or whatever yeah i, did, I think uh, it was definitely memetically successful <clears throat> um i did think there was i don't know if i want to I, I feel i feel bad bringing in eric weinstein again but uh you you got mad at him for saying something along the lines of it one time that he was like um you know, oh, you know, I could live under a bridge. And what was it basically? It was something along those lines where he was just like, yeah, I could I could give everything up. I don't care about my fame and money just so long as I can have my precious intellectual enterprise or whatever. Right. Something like that. Yep. I don't know how that relates to the two cultures thing. And I was just incredulous. I don't believe him when he says that while sitting in an ivory tower supported by billionaires Uh talking about and marketing himself uh, with very popular ideas he's not spending most of his time working on his weirdo physics ideas the ones that might lead him to be under a bridge that's not what he's doing so when he says i'm willing to that was annoying to me but i don't know how that relates how it relates is it's just a fun little tie-in is that i there's a he cp snow i think is in in a way there is a little bit of like he kind of seems to chastise the, you know, literary intellectuals more so than he does the scientists. Did you get that sense at all? Don't recall. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, 
he talks because I think there's this deep sympathy for the poor, you know, and that scientists, as he sees it or as he has come to understand it or learn and know it or whatever, is that most scientists were poor or whatever. And um, he says industrialization is the only hope for the poor. And he goes on, he says, um, I use the word hope in a crude and prosaic sense. I have not much use for the moral sensibility of anyone who is too refined to use it so. And here's the part that was the Eric Weinstein part for me. He goes, it is all very well for us sitting pretty to think that material standards of living don't matter all that much. It is all very well for one as a personal choice to reject industrialization. Do a modern Walden, if you like. Live under a bridge. And if you go without much food, see most of your children die in infancy, despise the comforts of literacy, accept 20 years off your own life, then I respect you for the strength of your aesthetic revulsion. Um, and I, I don't know, I just thought about that. And I think that seems to kind of, to me, he's talking about like it's a luxury you know, to be able to even say things like go on your trek to Walden Pond or whatever it is to live under a bridge. Yeah. And that, well, like um, they say, uh, if I remember right, Thoreau at Walden probably wouldn't or couldn't have pulled it off if he didn't have Emerson or whatever rich buddies in the city that he right. would go party with at night. And that might be a good parallel analogy with someone like uh, Eric Weinstein and Peter Thiel or whatever. And it's very, yeah. And it's very, uh, it's just cynical or whatever. Um, he goes at one point, he goes, it was no fun being an agricultural laborer in the mid to late 18th century in the time that we snobs that we are think of only as the time of the enlightenment pinker and Jane Austen. And then he goes, even before that, he goes, the poor would have walked off the land into the factories as fast as the factories could take them. And so I think that what's interesting to me about the Weinstein thing is that how I see it is in the beginning with this two cultures thing, scientists were at a, a bit of a disadvantage, perhaps in a way, as, as a culture to the literary intellectuals who basically had all the money. <clears throat> but over time, that has changed, right? It's kind of almost flipped. It seems like now, you know, humanities departments are being shut down and, and you know, just the humanities in general seems to have come on hard times. And really, it seems like all of the money, the technocrats, all that kind of stuff is in the sciences, you know, and that pe a lot of these people have backgrounds in science. And in particular, one of the things that isn't mentioned really in this, if at all, is, you know, uh, the computer age and computers and all that kind of stuff and what that has done for people as a means of like using a tool to leverage yourself, you know, if you're rich or poor, you know, further ahead or whatever. And so I kind of think that that's happened. And of course, during this, maybe even in like the late 80s to, you know, throughout the 90s, there's the whole postmodernism scare and the Sokol hoax or affair or whatever. And then Sokol hoax part two nowadays. Or in the 90s, there was the, you know, gender trouble by Judith Butler, um, which was trying to basically say, you know, you know, uh, 
actually, I have it here. Hold on. She says at one point, well, she says a lot of things, but uh, she says gender is not to culture as sex is to nature. Gender is also the discursive slash cultural means by which quote unquote sex to nature or a quote unquote natural sex is produced and established as pre-discursive quote unquote prior to culture, a politically neutral surface on which culture acts. And she continues on and, and, and this book was a sort of a, you know, flashpoint for a lot of this heated debate about science. And she has all these examples in the book where she's talking about where, you know, XY chromosome research and the master sequence of, you know, genes on the X or I mean the Y chromosome. And it's all very much based in male paternalistic, you know, uh, patriarchy, all that kind of crap, holding other people down, etc. But that at that point, maybe it was science being the power and the you know in power and successful, and the humanities and just sort of critical theory or French theory or whatever it is, was more on the the downturn. And I mean, even um, uh, what's his Jesus Christ his name, um, the hauntology guy. Why can't uh, uh, Derrida? Derrida, Jesus. You know his sort of response for you know hauntology. I guess was a response to the idea that, you know, effectively, you know, science-backed capitalism is one or whatever, you know, and and Marxism and socialism and communism is dead. The Berlin Wall's fallen. Go fuck yourselves or whatever. Um, anyway, and so I was thinking about those things and just sort of where we are today. But, I, you know, at this point, it does seem like maybe the science, sciences are, are more in the power position, the, the wealth position. So it's kind of flipped somehow. I and well, the, for the answer to the somehow, most people would probably point to the extreme technological successes of the outputs of science departments, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Well, maybe we can. Uh, you can head downtown tomorrow night and organize with your uh whatever they are whoever's down there now the moms and the antifas and the whatever and you guys can build a new uh ankeny wall or something (laughs) or just like split the city in two right down burnside Mm -hmm. that would be great um yeah But maybe that stuff's also trying to get power back, right? A lot of this, these, these ideas, this, you know, the cancel culture, all that kind of stuff is an attempt to gain some power, you know, predominantly by, you know, this say, you know, you've got like the talk about the two cultures. Here's a Reddit thing I saw and it's titled Judith Butler versus science. And this person says, I was talking to some big fans of Judith Butler and queer theory in general, and they claimed that gender is totally constructed by society. I claimed that there is a lot of scientific evidence for genetic influence through mainly hormones on stuff like sexual orientation, libido, stereotypical male, female interests, etc. That's a whole link to a journal um, special issue. Basically, gender is a mix of genetics and biological sex and upbringing slash society. 
I'm a female neuroscience student myself. These people completely refused to take any knowledge from biology and neuroscience into account. And they were highly educated grad students in the humanities. To me, this seems very dogmatic and unhealthy. It's fine to base a theory on the hypothesis that gender is totally constructed, but since this has been proven false <laughs> for at least the last 20 years, why do people still teach gender trouble in some parts of academia? So showing your age, maybe, I don't know. Why not move on and adapt the theory to be in sync with science? Which is a genuine question. Anyway, I was just thinking about those types of back and forths, and I was also thinking about Peterson and uh, Zizek and Zizek eventually being like, what is cultural Marxism? You know, and just this, you know, these these back and forths. It just seems like it's alive and well, and it's like a power struggle of sorts. Mm-hmm.